Uh, let's go ahead and open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. This is really an amazing chapter, and there's a lot to talk about today. And Revelation chapter 17 and 18 really talk about uh, Babylon in the last days. And specifically, chapter 17, we believe, is really... Uh, well, let me back up. 17 and 18 are what we call parenthetical chapters, which means that they're, they're chapters that are put in the, in, the, in the book here, but they're not necessarily chronological, meaning we just finished the bold judgments. And you recall in the sixth bold judgment that it talks about, I'm sorry, the seventh bold judgment, it talks about uh, God judging Babylon. And the very next thing after the judgment of Babylon, uh, prophetically, is Jesus coming back to the earth in his second coming, which we'll get to in chapter 19, specifically in verse 11. So these two chapters, 17 and 18, really give us some information on, on, on the destruction of Babylon. And specifically, chapter 17 will show us the harlot church, this church that is, is an apostate church. It's a church that's going to be in existence after the real church, you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, born again of the God's spirit. When we are removed from the earth, the Bible says that there's going to be perhaps a, a we don't know exactly how much time it's going to be, but at some point there is going to be a treaty that the man of lawlessness, who we, we term the Antichrist, he's going to be a politician, and he's going to allow the Jews, he's going to make a covenant or a treaty with the nation of Israel to build their temple on the Temple Mount. And there may be some time between the rapture and when that actually occurs. But once that treaty is signed and is in place, the Bible tells us, and we've been reading about it through chapters 6 through 19, there is a timetable, and it's seven years, seven-year period of when God is going to begin pouring out his wrath upon a world that has rejected his son, that has rejected his offers of salvation and has spurned his forgiveness. But this harlot church... This apostate church will be very prevalent in the first half, the first three and a half years of that great tribulation period. And if you recall, right midpoint of this seven-year period, there is going to be, the, the Antichrist is going to put an image of himself in the temple. And at that point is really where chapter 17 really comes into play, because before he does that, he has to literally destroy or do away with this harlot church, the apostate church. In other words, called the woman or the harlot that we're reading about in Revelation 17. He has to get rid of her, and we'll talk about why in just a few, in just a little while. But he has to get rid of her so that he can place himself on the throne, and he will be the one that's worshipped. Does that make sense? You have to. He's, he's going to use this woman. He's going to use the apostate church up to a certain point, and then when her usefulness has. Uh, when she's no longer useful to him, she and the ten kings with she um, I'm sorry, he and the ten ten kings with him will destroy her, will make her void. Um, and we don't really know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's going to be he's going to destroy her, whatever that means. Um, and so and then chapter eighteen is really what we're looking at in the second half of the tribulation period, specifically in this perhaps in the seventh bold judgment that we looked at a few weeks ago, 
that judgment is going to be fleshed out, if you will, in chapter 18. We're going to see the ecclesiastical Babylon, which is chapter 17, and then the political and economic Babylon, which we will look at in chapter 18. But why don't we go ahead and look at the chapter? We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week, and so what I thought we'd do is just read those first two verses, and we'll get right into this. Now, the nice thing about this study and, and, and the services that we do is they are available online after they are streamed, they're available up there for uh, over a year, okay? So please uh, take advantage of that because I'm going to be moving along pretty quickly because there's a lot in this chapter and um, I don't want to, I'd like to finish it today if we can, but I don't want to force it. But if there's anything that you need to go and review, please go online uh, to our website and you can review any service we've done here at the church over the last year. You can, yeah, um, you can listen to it, you can listen to it again, you can get it on our, on our podcast on Apple, um, Apple Podcasts, you can get the, the services there as well to review. But let's go ahead and look at uh, verse 1 of Revelation 17. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, John speaking, saying to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Boy, that sounds really interesting. Show you the judgment of the great harlot. Boy, that sounds like wonderful, doesn't it? That's great news. <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek. So, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, notice in verse 3, we pick up there today. It says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. <clears throat> Excuse me. On a scarlet beach, beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads and ten horns. This woman, uh, we know as the apostate harlot church. It's called a harlot church because she's committed spiritual adultery. Instead of having Jesus Christ as her, her Lord and Savior, she has chosen anything, anything goes. Any religion, it's sort of like going into Baskin Robbins or wherever it is, you know, you got 55 flavors, whatever it is, you've got many flavors to choose from, and that's what the church is going to look like after the true church has been raptured before the great tribulation period. And so she's a harlot. She's basically doing anything, and anything goes at this point, as long as it's not about Jesus. Do you know the devil loves the fact that there's Hinduism? He loves the fact that there's Buddhism. He loves the fact that there's Jehovah's Witnesses. He loves the fact that there is Mormons. He loves the fact that there is all kinds of New Age movements because all of those religions are not focused on the biblical Jesus. They have a, new, a Jesus of their own if they have one at all. But the Bible says that he is God. He is God. And there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so this woman is the harlot church, and she's sitting on a scarlet beast. And we looked at this beast, and we'll look at it more today. This beast is not only a physical human being whom we call the Antichrist or the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, however you want to call him, but he's also symbolic of a revived Roman Empire that's going to be on the earth that's actually in shape right now, believe it or not. It's already in the works. It's been in the works. And when the church is removed... 
this revived Roman Empire in Europe is going to take shape once again, and he is going to be the one who's going to rule over the whole thing eventually. So that is the Scarlet Beast. The Scarlet Beast is not only the man, but it's also the revived Roman Empire. And it's interesting, if you look at the position here, the woman is sitting on the Scarlet Beast. That means that the woman is not only supported for a season, and we'll see this at the end of the chapter, but she's also somewhat in control of the beast. Until he the Antichrist, the beast, until he ultimately destroys her with the ten kings. And like I said, we're going to see that in verses 16 through 18. So this woman is the ecclesiastical power, and this beast that she's riding on is the political power of the Antichrist of the revived Roman Empire. And so, and this scarlet beast is what we call an amalgamation or a combination of the beasts of world history spoken to us in Daniel chapter 2, um, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. I would encourage you to read those two chapters as you read this chapter, and I think it will make some sense. I've spent a great deal of time praying and looking over these chapters, and it's become clearer and clearer to me, and uh, it's, it's a really wonderful uh, study to undertake. You just got to be patient and, and look into it and make sure all the things uh, line up. And so when we look at this beast, though, it is uh, this final beast that we're looking at in the Antichrist. He is going to be a combination, really, of the beasts that were before him, the, the kingdoms, the world kingdoms, the empires that were on the earth. And we know that the, one of them was Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 2 and 7, it talks about these, these beasts, these different kingdoms, and the kings that oversee them. Babylon, he, 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 was, uh, he coincided with the lion and the head of gold and Daniel or a Nebuchadnezzar statue that he had a dream of. And then secondly, the Medes and the Persians uh, was... Um, was in the likeness of a bear and, 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 the, and silver in the head of, or that figure that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of. And Greece was the third uh, Roman, or not Roman Empire, <laughs> Greece was the third empire represented by the leopard and the brass. And Rome, this dreadful beast that we're looking at, is, um, and also the iron mixed with clay. These are really two phases, if you recall, during John's time, during Jesus' time, the Roman Empire was in full swing, and that was the first phase. The second phase of this Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire, is yet to come on the scene. It's already in place, and it's just kind of lying dormant. Lying dormant, but at the right time, it's going to come, to come to life again. It was dead, it was, it was dead, or was not, and then it is going to yet be. Remember that, because that's interesting. And so, and we also see in Revelation 13, remember when we were there uh, a, a few months ago, or, or about a month ago, I suppose, we talked about the Antichrist, this beast of, of the sea. And in the very first verse, what does it say? Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. There we go. Same beast that we're talking about right now in chapter 17 was also in chapter 13. Same personage. And notice in verse 4 back in our text, it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Gold, purple, scarlet, all of these things speak of wealth and royalty. 
and the pomp and the glitz of, and the gold and the really extravagant vestments that are all characteristic of not only the Roman Catholic Church, but also Eastern Orthodox Church and many Protestant churches for that matter. They are all here in this apostate church. This woman who's arrayed in all these fine things, very, very wealthy. Uh, back in 1952, and this goes back a long way compared to where we're at today, so I'd imagine this is even, uh, the, the church that I'm going to be speaking of is even more lucrative now than it ever was. But back in 1952, there was a gentleman by the name of J.J. Van Gorder who stated that a survey showed that the Roman Catholic Church maintained in the United States 337 seminaries, 238 colleges, 1,596 high schools, 7,777 elementary schools, 348 orphan asylums, 731 general hospitals, and 110 special hospitals, 244 homes for the aged. And this was back in 1952. I don't know if anybody's taken on a similar survey today, but I would imagine that it's even greater, much greater than that. Much greater than that. I would encourage you as we go forward in here, there's two books that, uh, if you're into this kind of thing, which I am, I don't know if you are, but... um, There's a couple of books I'd highly recommend, and that is uh, Dave Hunt, uh, A Woman Rides the Beast. He kind of holds to the fact that Rome is this harlot church, and I believe that Rome is part of it, and maybe the most significant part of it, but it's going to be not only just Roman Catholic in nature, but it's also going to include all the um, apostate Protestant churches and New Age movements. They're all going to be amalgamated or combined into this one harlot church at the end, but he really gives some compelling evidence that Rome is behind all of this, and I believe he's true. I believe he's right. And there's also another book by Alexander Hislop called The Two Babylons. It's not a real easy read, but it goes into the deep foundations of Babylonianism and how it has infiltrated the Catholic Church and has really, um, and even some of the things that they do today and some of the visual things that they have, it all has its foundation back in Babylon. It's really quite fascinating. It's really quite fascinating. But look at verse 5 back in our text now. It says, And on her head, notice, was a name. A name was written. Notice, very carefully, mystery, comma, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. This word mystery is the Greek word mysterion, and it's a noun and not an adjective. It's a noun. It is not an adjective. Most people have always said mystery Babylon, as if mystery is describing Babylon, but that's not the way it is. Notice that even in the New King James Version or the King James Version, there is a comma there. It is a noun not describing Babylon. So it is a mystery, but it is not mystery Babylon. It's just a mystery. And in the Bible, Babylon is never given the title mystery Babylon the Great. It is never given that ever. In fact, in Revelation, in this same uh, verse in the New American Standard Bible, what does it say? It says, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, comma, and then the title, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, etc. It says the same thing in the uh, uh, English Standard Version, and on her head was written a name, of, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations, and we also look in the NIV, we see something very similar. The name of on her was written, 
a mystery. It was on her forehead was a mystery. And the title, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So Babylon the Great, Great Babylon, or the Great City Babylon is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation, but never Mystery Babylon the Great. Does that make sense? And that's important because... Um, We'll look at that in a minute. But there's six times it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. It's mentioned in Revelation 16, verse 19. In other words, these titles, Babylon the Great, or Great Babylon, or the Great City Babylon. It's also mentioned in 17, verse 5, which is where we're at now. In Revelation 18, verse 2, verse 10, and verse 21, they all give these titles, but never Mystery Babylon the Great. It's not meant to be a mystery. I mean, it is a mystery, but it's something that is revealed to us. I mean, is the, is the book of Revelation, the very title of the book, Apocalypsis, means an unveiling, not a concealing. So think about that as we come to this. It's not meant to conceal. It's meant to reveal who this is. The source behind this apostate church, this harlot church. And what is the source? It's Babylon. Babylon. When the Bible says Babylon, it means Babylon, with only one maybe exception. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, where Peter was in Rome, actually, and so was, um, so was John Mark. And he said, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark my son. And Peter was in, in Rome in prison, at the Mamertine prison. I was actually able to visit that in 1990. But that's where he was. So Babylon in that verse specifically could be a code name for Rome, and it's very possible, because later on in history, Babylon did become a code name for Rome. But in here, and especially when we get into chapter 18, Babylon is Babylon. Take the Bible literally, unless it lends itself and reveals it itself, that it's speaking of something else. Like a woman sitting on many waters, you know that that's symbolic, right? Because a woman can't sit on many waters, neither can a man for that matter, even a very large man, right? So you know in context what that's all about. And Babylon is the, is the second most named city in the Bible, appearing some 290 times. The only one that trumps that is Jerusalem, which occurs over 800 times. And so Babylon meant Babylon, it meant Babylon. In the second century, uh, Tertullian, who was a, one of the church fathers, and again, um, late in the second century, he used the name Babylon as a code name for Rome. But prior to that, it meant, it meant Babylon. It meant Babylon. And so what we're looking at here in chapter 17, when he says mystery, a mystery, Babylon the Great, he's talking about Babylon. He's talking about the very beginnings, the foundations of Babylon. <clears throat> and again, it is a mystery, because where is the foundation of this? Where did it all come from, and where is it going? I think it's very interesting that really the beginning of pagan religion, the very beginning of humanism, the very beginning of it all came on that plain in Shinar after the flood. Nimrod, we'll see later on, built this place in Genesis chapter 10. They began building it in Genesis chapter 11. 
And ultimately, at the end of all things, God is going to allow that city to be rebuilt again, and it's going to be the headquarters for this Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire with the Antichrist at the helm. But it is a mystery. In Colossians, it speaks about this idea of a mystery. And again, a mystery is something that is now revealed that was previously hidden from us that we didn't quite understand. And in fact, Colossians 1.26, it says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And he gives the mystery here. Here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that was the mystery. The church being indwelt by the Spirit of God, that was completely unknown to the to the Jews, even the prophets, they're, they're, they're writing things and they don't quite understand. But that was a mystery that was concealed then, but has now been revealed in the name of Christ, whom by his spirit has indwelt us. Aren't you glad you're indwelt by the spirit? I don't know, are you? <laughs> yes, we are. I am so blessed to be a Christian. So blessed. And you should be too. Rejoice in the King of Kings. Rejoice in the one that loves you with an everlasting love. Rejoice in the one who gave everything for you. He hasn't withheld any good thing from you, and he never will. And I'm so thankful for him. But notice this, the interaction between the beast and this woman is a mystery. This apostate church and this unholy, revived Roman Empire, what could they possibly do together? That, that is a mystery as well. And the title shows the origin of the woman's religion, where she gets this apostate religion. She is the progenitress, if I can use that term, of everything that is anti-Christian. Everything that is anti-Christian is found in this apostate harlot woman. So she calls herself, in verse 5, the mother of harlots. Notice, she's not just a harlot, she is the mother, she's the progenitress of harlotry. And the only place that we know where that originally came forward was in, or began, was in Babylon. In Babylon, it all happened there. And notice that John doesn't tell us whether this is some mark on her forehead, because it says on her forehead a name was written. Was it a mark on her forehead, or was it a band? Uh, just like the, the prostitutes, the Roman prostitutes, they would put a band around their head. Uh, was it that? We really don't know. But she's the mother of harlots. That means the mother has many harlot daughters. Many harlot daughters. Many churches no longer believing in Jesus. And let me, let me tell you that in our country right now, even within this city, there are so many different flavors of Christianity happening. And so many different things that are happening that are not in the Bible. A different Jesus is being worshipped. A Jesus that embraces anyone for any reason and doesn't require you to change at all. You can come, you can come as you are and stay as you are, is the mantra. Hey, listen, if you come into the presence of Jesus Christ, you will be changed. Amen? You read the Bible, you come into face to you come into contact with Almighty God, believe me, whatever you were is gonna change. And that is the greatest witness, folks is a changed life. My life has been completely changed because of him and only him. And I am so blessed. 
So blessed. I've never been more alive in my life, and I'm so excited about it, and I love it. And that's the news that we want to share, right? But this, she is the mother of harlots, and these harlot daughters uh, comprise not only, again, of Roman Catholicism, which I believe is the root of it, the very foundation, but also apostate Protestantism. The Protestants aren't off the hook. And every foul thing, like Eastern mysticism and the New Age movement, it's all going to be together like a big, unholy soup. And it's going to be ugly. And it was all spawned from the mother of harlots, Babylon. And it started back in Genesis. Back in Genesis, the devilish foundations of Babylon. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis uh, chapter 11. I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 10, just a few verses, but go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 11, because we're going to go there shortly. But notice, before we do, in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6, it speaks of uh, this Babylon and the one who built it. It says, the sons of Ham, verse 6 of Genesis 10, the sons of Ham, because remember, after they came off the ark, there was Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and uh, Noah and his wife and, and, um, and the animals. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and notice, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaka. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dadan. But notice verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And notice in verse 10 what it says, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babel literally means the gate of God, or the gate of heaven, the gate of God. And he also be- began building Erech, another town, Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, uh, Ir, and Calah, and Reason, between, the Nineveh, between Nineveh and Calah, that is the principal city. So we see that Nimrod was this original builder. He built Babel, which is now called Babylon. It was called the city of God, but now God, you're going to see, is going to call it the, the, the city of confusion because of what he does to this place. And it's interesting that Nimrod's wife was known by the name of Semiramis, and she was a high priestess of idol worship. And so Nimrod was not a, uh, a man who was dedicated and devoted to God. He was involved in pagan idolatry aware, uh, as well. And according to extra-biblical records, Semiramis, she gave birth to a son who she claimed was conceived miraculously. And you wonder where this whole dogma of the Catholic Church, the Immaculate Conception, came from. I think it came from Babylon. But somehow there was a miraculous birth. Another virgin would give birth. We know the truth. Mary did. She was a virgin, and she did give birth to Jesus. And that is definitely true. But just like everything with Satan, he counterfeits everything. And he counterfeits even the virgin birth. He counterfeits those involved and paints his own little picture. And see, deception very rarely is just a bald-faced lie. Most of the time, it's 99% truth and 1% error. Or 90% truth and 10% error. Or 60% truth and 40% error. It doesn't matter. Anything to get you hooked in, to bring you in, and then the deception occurs. And that's exactly what happened. Also, Tammuz was the, was the offspring of that. He was said to have been killed by a wild animal and brought back to life. 
like Jesus was brought back to life. That's the fact. This whole other thing is a bunch of nonsense. But that's where it came from, Babylon, these mystery religions. And then the son, Tammuz, was considered a savior of his people and was, in effect, a false messiah, purported to be the fulfillment of the promise given to Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15. And so we see the very beginning of it back in in the book of Genesis in Babylon. And it's interesting, too, we see this legend or this idea of the mother and the child. It became incorporated into the religious rites of many religions, many religions. It started in Babylon, and it was exported from there and became embedded in so many different religions all, all around the world. And you see that in the slide before us this morning. In Assyria, it was, the mother was Ishtar, and the child was Tammuz, and Phoenicia, Astarte, and Baal. And then going down, let me just go down the list here, even in Roman Catholicism, Mary and Jesus. Now that was a fact that these things happened, but they, they've made it something different. And they, 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 they claim that Mary was somehow equal and co-redeemer with Jesus, which is a bunch of nonsense. But all of this mother and child, the, 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 there's so many pictures in Roman Catholicism of, of the mother and child, and naturally so. But where did they get the fa- that there's just this fascination. Why not just be fascinated with Jesus? Mary was a blessed woman, no doubt. But you know, she's in heaven right now, shaking her head. Why are people doing that? Why are people venerating me? They should be venerating the only son. Follow me? So from Babylon, this was exported. And so this mother-son cult was exported throughout all of the world. And thus... Babylon is the mother. She's the mother of harlots. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. What does it say? It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed this mass of people from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come and let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly through. So they were, these were kiln-baked bricks, meant to last, not something that's just for here and maybe in a few years kind of disintegrates. No, These were kiln-baked bricks. They were meant to last. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, and this, this is their sin, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, that lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So what, why was this sinful rebellion? It's very simple, because in Genesis, if you remember, God told Adam and Eve, He says, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And what did he say also in Genesis chapter 8, verses 15, when they came out of the ark? Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out from with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth. Abound on the, on the earth, not just in the plain of Shinar. Do you follow me? Don't just come out and huddle and have a holy huddle and build a great tower. No, disperse throughout the earth. Multiply throughout the earth. That was the command of God, was it not? But what happens when man gathers together, very naturally, of the, of the flesh? We better do something. We've got all this manpower. We can do anything. Nothing is restrained from us. We can do anything. And the evil heart of man is always going to take a, a situation like that, and it's never going to end good. It never does. Have you ever noticed that about your nature? 
Left alone of itself without any guidance from the Lord, (laughs) we always dig ourselves a deep hole. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. The purpose of this tower that they had built, as well uh, as uh, later ziggurats, was to serve as a staircase from earth to heaven. And so human beings wanted to reach God by their efforts. This idea of pagan religion, humanism, which is man's doing his thing to better himself, to somehow do what he can do to reach God. I can do it. And that's really what religion is. Do you understand? That's why Christianity is really not a religion. It's a relationship. But religion is things that you have to do to be made right with God. Things that I have to do. I've got to walk on glass. I've got to, I've got to weep and, and take the flagellum and whip my and, and make this pilgrimage to somewhere. All of that is works. <laughs> and that's religion for you. Religion is what I've got to do to reach God. But God says, I've done everything for you. Did he not say on the cross it is finished? That means we don't have to do anything but believe in his sacrifice and everything he said and did. I believe in him and I'm secure. He does the work. All I have to do is believe what he did. I don't know about you, but that's really good news. That means I can't mess it up. Because he's already done the perfect thing. All I got to do is simply believe in that perfect thing. It's really quite simple, actually. But yet we somehow want to have our part in it. We somehow want to have our hooks in it and saying, I did something as, you know, to, to, to save my own self. You've done nothing. You don't need to do anything. You simply need to believe And so the ziggurat at Babylon, later rebuilt by Nebuchadnezzar, was named uh, Atemanaka, which is a a word that just means the building which is the foundation of heaven and earth. The heaven and earth. So they decide they're going to reach God. And we know that they did awful, horrible practices on the top of that ziggurat. And you see that even in the Aztec religion today. They would sacrifice human beings, take out the heart of suspects, up there and sacrifice it to their God. We see even that in the Mayan, in, the, in the, uh, those pagan religions in South America. Where did it come from? The mother of harlots, Babylon. It all started here. And it wasn't that God was concerned that they would reach him because he is way out of their reach. Rather, he was concerned that this united rebellion against him would um, and the pagan practices that were carried out in that tower. And so what was God's response to this work of man? It tells us in verse 7 of chapter 11 there, it says, Come, let us, here's a reference to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And this is the mercy of God as well as a judgment against them. Do you understand that? Because to allow them to continue in this, and not be accountable would lead them further into judgment that God would have to judge. Does that make sense? God stopped them in their process because he had just judged the earth. And now they come out and they begin to do these other things. He could have judged the earth again, but what did he do? Instead of judging them and starting all over again, he confused their language. And that's why we have French and German and and Spanish and Russian and Arabic and Hebrew, all these languages that we see. Where did it come from? Right here, folks. Right here. The foundation of it was right here. How did God do that? I don't know. He can tweak anything in your brain and all of a sudden you don't understand. He's able. If he's able to say, let there be light, and there was light, I think it's a pretty easy thing for him to go, you know, I'm just going to confuse their language. They're going to have to develop a whole new language, and they separated into the earth, which was originally what he wanted them to do to begin with. 
boy, we're knuckleheads. <laughs> Aren't we? <laughs> Man left alone to his own devices, we're just a bunch of rebel scoundrels. Rebels! Aren't you glad you, your rebelness has been converted? I'm so glad for myself, for you as well. But notice they were disciplined to prevent further judgment. And this is God's grace. Do you see it as God's grace or just a mean God trying to stop uh, some big building project? No, it was his grace that he stopped them. Because if he didn't stop them, he would have to judge them. So in his grace, he confused their language, caused them to disperse throughout the earth. And Babel, Babylon literally means confusion, the city of confusion. So in verse 8 of of, uh, Genesis 11, it says, The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, which is originally what he wanted to do. And they ceased building the city. Hallelujah. Now God doesn't have to judge them for what their their disobedience. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. And this is exactly the same thing that we're going to see. We're going to look at it more next week, hopefully, when we get into chapter 18. A literal city, Babylon, is going to be built on the shores of the Euphrates. And Saddam Hussein began building it in the 90s. And then he had to forego that because we invaded their country and put a stop to it. But there's plenty there. They did quite a bit, and it's still there. And the Bible says that that place is going to be a city once again, and it won't take long for that city to become a huge city once again. We've seen it in modern history, just in 10 years, how easy it is for a city that was once desert to become a big, bustling city. Not a hard thing in today's standards. So I believe that that's literally what it means. Babylon is a city that is going to be rebuilt again. I believe that. And that's where the Antichrist will take up his reign and his headquarters, if you will. Notice back in verse 6 of our text this morning in Revelation 17. It says, I saw the woman, she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman, this harlot church, this apostate church, she was drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And if you think of this, Throughout history, Rome, who I believe is the center, the foundation of this apostate church, there's going to be many others that are going to pile on to that apostate church. But even going back into the 12th and 16th century, the Roman and the Spanish inquisitions were responsible for the death of millions of Jews, Christians, and even Muslims. Sir Robert Anderson said of Scotland Yard, he estimated that Rome was guilty of the death of 50 million Christians. The Inquisition, the stake, and the torture chambers are all history. Recent persecutions against Christians in Spain, Colombia, and elsewhere confirm this. So they were part of it. The church persecuting the church. The false church persecuting the real church. Now, does that mean that everyone in Roman Catholicism is going to hell? No, I don't believe that. Are many lost in that religion? Yes, I believe there is. And I believe they are not biblical. They're not, they're not reading their Bible. They're not even encouraged to read the Bible. Many of you know, if you have family members, they think if you're a born-again believer and you're going to a church like this, that you belong to a cult because you're following Jesus. I've heard it from people. Believe me, this area, I mean, I live right next to East Rochester. That's like little Italy. 
And everyone there has been, is either was a Catholic or is. And I've heard from so many of them that they, they say that the, when they go to church and they talk about a church like ours or, or you know, Protestant Bible-believing churches, you know, they call us a cult because we believe in Jesus and we, we, we believe in the word of God. Well, what do you believe in then? What do you believe in then? That's the challenge to them. God loves them, but I can tell you right now, he does not like their system at all. He doesn't like their religion because even their own people are not encouraged to bring their Bible to Mass, much less read it. It's supposed to be interpreted for you because you're, you're an idiot and you can't understand it unless somebody who is schooled and has the right vestments teach you and show you what it means. You can't read it on your own. You're not qualified like me. And that's a problem. Anything that gets in the way between you and Christ is a problem. Okay? But that doesn't mean that everyone who is in Catholic, many of them, there are believers. I believe they're genuine believers. I think they're just caught into a system, and it's just a tradition. It's something that they're, they're, you know, it's like the mafia. Once they're in, they can't get out. But I believe they're people who really love the Lord and are really born again, and they're, and they're puzzled, and they're, 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 they're still reading their Bibles. They're praying to the Lord. They're not giving their devotion to Mary, and yet the rest of them are. The rest of them are going along with all the nonsense. It doesn't make sense, folks. Robert Govet was appointed, was pointed out that when the massacre of St. Bartholomew took place, and I, and I personally don't know of this instance, but it says Protestants throughout France were butchered. Rome appointed religious services of thanksgiving as a result of this and struck medals in commemoration of the joyful event. It is strange yet true that while claiming to be Christ's church, she persecutes to death Christ's true believers. And that's a quote. That's a quote. She has, and not to mention the many that will be martyred during the Great Tribulation period, this apostate church. The church at that time, because there'll still be believers on the earth that come to Christ after the church is removed, and those believers during the tribulation will be persecuted by this apostate church. Do you understand? They're going to be persecuted. Not only is the devil and the Antichrist coming after them, but even the apostate church doesn't want anything to do with them because it convicts them. And that's just the way it is. Get used to persecution, folks, because guess what? It's coming. It's here. And it's coming. Make sure you're founded firmly in the faith of Jesus Christ. Make sure that your foundation is Christ and nothing else. Make sure that you're reading the Bible more than you're reading any of the other fake news, including Fox News, who's the new fake news. But the harlot church has always and will always persecute God's true church of Jesus Christ. I remember in 1990, I had the privilege of going over to Europe with a travel study group from college, and we went all over Europe in a month. I mean, we literally went to every cathedral that you could think of, every major city. It was a really wonderful time in my life. And one of the places that we went, when we went to Rome, we, went, we toured the Vatican. We went inside the Vatican and looked at all the, the Sistine Chapel and all the galleries, and we went everywhere. And one of the places we went is St. Priscilla as catacombs which is on the outskirts of the city and literally it's a catacombs 
that, the, that the, the real church of Jesus Christ during the time of persecution back in the first century and the second century, they would hide below ground. And we actually went down into, we, we walked down these wooden planks down into this really um, kind of dark and musty. They had these just little light bulb hanging, you know, kind of thing. And you're walking through and you can see the, the sides, the, 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 the slits on the sides of the walls where they would bury their dead. You know, the Christians, they would bury them, their dead in there and they would go in there and we, we would see the different places where they used to gather to worship out of sight of all the Roman, the Roman church because they were being hunted. And I remember as an unbeliever even, when I was 20 years old, being there and being completely blown away. And I remember it now. But they persecuted even the church. Maybe you're being persecuted. And again, as my, my intention this morning is not to get you angry with the Roman Catholics, okay? If you want to be angry with something, be, be angry with or frustrated with their, their religion, okay? But the people love them, okay? They need to be loved. They need salvation just like we did. And, many, and some of them do know him already. So don't, um, you know, we have to be careful. God is love, and we want to reach them and encourage them in, to faith in Christ. So verse 7, back in our text, it says, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And again, we saw this in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Again, the same thing of the, the, you know, it talks about another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. We see it again in chapter 13. You know, this beast rising up out of the sea, having ten, uh, seven heads and ten horns. We'll look at this more in detail when we get into verse 10 below. But notice in verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was, notice, and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now remember, the beast is actually means more than just one thing. The beast, we know, is the satanic power behind the Antichrist. We know that. It also means the Antichrist himself, the man who is over this revived Roman Empire. And the, the revived Roman Empire itself is called the beast. And so when you, when you think of the beast, think of all those things together. It's, it's almost like you can't separate the man from the thing that he rules over. Does that make sense? It's sort of like the apostate church when it, call, when it talks about the woman. And we'll look at this uh, at the end of the chapter if we get there today. I hope we can. Um, the woman is associated with this city that reigns over the kings of the earth, which we believe is Rome. And so, and notice that it speaks of him who was and is not and yet is. I believe this speaks to them, not only the beast himself, because we know that he, was, he, he will be alive, and then he will have an assassination attempt, and then he will rise from the dead and be indwelt by Satan, and then he will continue. But we also know that the Roman Empire was very similar. It was, and yet is not. It's, it was dissolved really in 476 AD. That's when the, when the Roman, temp, or Roman uh, uh, Empire collapsed, really, the western part of it, in 476 but yet, it's going to be revived again after the church is removed. So it was, 
and was not, and then is. So the beast and his government is going to be a mystery. And that's literally what I believe that means. So there is a oneness between the man and the government that he rules over. In the book of life, we know that in, uh, in Exodus chapter 32, after the stint that the children of Israel had with the golden calf, remember when Moses came down from the mountain and they were worshiping the golden calf? And Moses intercedes for them and he says, I pray for them, forgive their sin, and if not, wipe out, erase me, I pray thee, out of, the, your, book of, of, out of your book which you have written. We see the book of life also in the last, or the second to the, actually it's, let me just say Revelation chapter 20. In verse 15, at the very last judgment, the white throne judgment, what does it say? And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There is a book of life. And I believe that every person is written in the book of life until they take their last breath and depending on what they've done with Christ, that name either remains in the book or it gets blotted out. And why is it that way? Because God loves people. He doesn't bring you as a baby. He doesn't allow you to be conceived in the womb, knowing from eternity past that you were going to come to pass, that you were going to be born. He's already written your name in the book before you were born. Didn't he say to Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you. Isn't that scary? Check out Psalm 139 and it talks about God's omniscience, his omnipresence. He knows. But this book of life, God is so patient with people. He writes your name in, I believe even before conception. And your name is there until you take your last breath on this earth. And then whatever it is that we've done with Christ during that time that we've lived, from the time of conception until our last breath, that determines where we spend in eternity. And that's, that's a really wonderful grace, if you think. It's the scariest thing I've ever known. But that's the way it is. Notice in verse 9, Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Now this is a really interesting couple of verses, and there's been much debate on what this phrase, here is the mind that has wisdom, means. Much debate about it. But verse 9 and 10 are either speaking about the same thing, or they're speaking about two different things, although they are very similar. Notice in verse 9, it says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And then, you know, in verse 10, it says, and, these, and there are also seven kings. So this has a double meaning. It's uh, seven heads and it also are seven um, hills on which the woman sits, and it's also re- referring to kings. So these, this idea of mountains can represent kingdoms or empires, and it often does in the Bible. There's plenty of scriptures that uh, corroborate that. It could also represent the physical location or of the center for the woman, which I believe is Rome, who is the end-time apostate church. And Rome has always been known as the city of seven hills. Always. Without question. The city on seven hills. So this apostate church, we believe, is going to be centered in Rome And again, it won't just be Roman Catholicism. It will be apostate, Protestantism, New Age, everything. Because once the church is removed, believe me, there's going to be no witness on the earth. Anything goes. Everyone will finally be able to have a big bonfire and enjoy, 
you know, the light, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> Embrace the light. Find the light within. Oh, there it is. I found it. Nonsense. Jesus is the light, right? The city on seven hills. Rome has been famously known as that. The Roman poet uh, Propertius spoke of it as the lofty city on seven peaks which rules the world. Ancient Roman coins show Titus Vespasian seated on seven hills. The Roman Catholic Church itself in the confraternity edition of the New Testament, they actually, cl- they actually claim that Rome is Babylon. Themselves, they claim that Rome is Babylon. Now I'm not saying that the Rome that we're uh, the, the Roman chapter 17, I believe, is Rome, or Babylon. I believe that it, it, it's, it's, it's speaking about the, the foundation of it going back to Babylon, a real Babylon that we read about. But I also believe that the, the foundation of that will be in Rome. Rome. In fact, the seven hills of Rome are listed here. I'm not even going to try and pronounce these. I'll let you look at them. But there are seven different hills, and we can actually see a map of what that looks like along the Tiber River. You can see the, the different uh, hills that are on Rome. It's been called, it ha- Rome has been and will more likely be the center, again, of that harlot church. Layman Strauss, uh, a famous Bible commentator, he spoke of John Paul XXIII, who reigned from October 28, 1958 to June 3, 1963, This is really interesting. He says, Since the late Pope John ascended the papal throne, there has been a growing movement towards the merging of all religions into a world church. This has been uh, in the the works for many hundreds of years. It has been in the works for a long time. For a long time. He goes on and he says, Pope John, this, this Pope John specifically had a desire for a one world government and a one world church. He called two councils for the express purpose of setting the wheels in motion toward the forming of the ecumenical church. Ecumenism is not necessarily good because that means that we throw away doctrine for the sake of unity. Never do that, even if you are a small remnant. Don't worry about if you're not a big church. God is not concerned about a big church. He's concerned about a holy church. It doesn't matter how many people are in that church. If there are 10 people who really love him with all their heart, he's more excited about that than a room filled with 10,000 people who are just doing anything they want. He loves those people, don't get me wrong, but he really loves the fact that these 10, and he looks at them and he goes, oh, you're my beloved. And he wants those other 10,000 to know him just like those 10 do. Does that make sense? So never get concerned about numbers. God could care less about numbers. He could care less about size. That's why I don't care about how big our fellowship is or isn't. It's more important that we know the truth. It's more important that we love Christ. It's more important that we worship him. Amen? And that we follow the word of God. I mean, why would you go to church for any other reason? To eat? To fellowship? To gossip? To be entertained by the worship team? By the way, they did an awesome job this morning. Fantastic job. No, you come to church to worship him and encourage each other, right? That's what we're here for. The Vatican and the Roman Catholic Church have consistently over the years caved in on issues that the Bible speaks clearly about. There is and was a, actually a great push to make the Virgin Mary co-redemptrix. 
with Jesus. You know what that means? It means she's equal with Christ. Because of the immaculate conception dogma that they hold to, which believes that she was perfect before and after and during conception of Jesus. And therefore, she is equal with him. There are portions of the Roman Catholic Church, a large portion, that want that. They want it in their dogma. They want it in their writings. They want to be, because the woman, I mean, who, who doesn't love a nurturing mother after all? But where does it stem? Babylon. Where does it come from? Babylon. In a New York Times article on December 23rd of the year 2000, there was a title says, Seeking a Promotion for the Virgin Mary. And this gentleman, who is, his name is Mark Miravale. He's a professor at the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. He said, Pope John Paul II has made no secret of his devotion to Mary. Totus tuus, which in Latin means totally yours, is his motto in which he dedicates his papacy to her. He has used the phrase co-redemptrix six times in the papacy to, to describe Mary, which has led petitioners to hope that during the lifetime, during his lifetime, he will proclaim her as co-redeemer. Mr. Miraval has visited privately with the Pope several times, but he would not say what was discussed during the meetings. All I can tell you, he says, is that I am personally confident that the Holy Father will make his solemn definition of the mother of Jesus at the most appropriate time. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of when. So you can see this harlot church is already in place. And you know what? They don't like when I say that. But you know what? I'm not the only one. Going back hundreds of years, these things have been true. The evidence is overwhelming, just like the suitcases full of ballots that are coming out of the, uh, underneath the tables in Georgia. <laughs> and we got video now. It's not over, folks. Verse 10, there are also seven kings, five have fallen. One is and the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. I'm looking at the time, and I'm thinking we should probably hold off until next week to finish this. I really wanted to get through this, but there's so, much, um, there's so much here that I think is important for us in the day that we're living in to kind of see, to unpack this, and to look at it for what it's worth. But I want you to, to be encouraged. And again, don't, you know, I remember when I read the book, um, A Woman Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt. I read the book, and frankly, I was angry. I got angry. And I was younger as a Christian then too, more or less mature, hopefully, than I am today. But I remember reading that book and getting angry because I realized, how is it that this system has deceived so many people? So many people that really, I believe, love God, really love him, and really want to know him. And yet, because of tradition, because of family pressures, peer pressure within the family, and it is this way, you know it if you've been involved in it, and maybe you've come out from, from among it and you've been castigated. Your whole family has kind of written you off. You're dead to us. Have you heard that? I've talked to some people who have come out of Catholicism. 
have come to be born again, and they, they, I mean, they're, they're totally on fire, totally excited, and their family says, you're dead to us. We don't want to see you again. And it's like, really? For just doing what the Bible has told us to do and to believing what Jesus, who he is and what he said, shouldn't they be doing the same thing? They should be. So why aren't they? Tradition. 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 Tradition can be a horrible thing. I would rather be faithful to the word of God than follow my tradition. They need to follow Christ and put out their traditions. Traditions even of the church. You know, we have traditions, and they're not necessarily bad. We have a tradition that on Christmas Eve, every year, we gather together and have a Christmas Eve service. Some churches don't do that, and that's okay. I mean, it's kind of nice to be home in, in your slippers with your hot cider in front of the fire. You know, some of that sliced summer sausage and cheese and those townhouse crackers. You know, the butter ones that are shaped like an oval? They're really good on that. Who doesn't want? You know, we get together and we worship the Lord that, the night before, and it's great. That's our tradition. Is that a bad thing? No. Does it go against anything written in the Word of God? No, it doesn't. That's our tradition. It's okay that somebody, some churches don't. It's no problem. They have their traditions that are good. But if, if they're biblical, praise the Lord. But if they're not biblical, you have to ask yourself, what has more authority, the Pope or a dogma or the Word of God? And this is where it has to end. It has to end with the Word of God. Can I get an amen? Do you believe it? Because why would I want to hold to something that's not in here? Especially if it's going to draw me away into something else. If I believe that by being baptized as a baby, that's going to get me to heaven no matter how I live for the rest of my life. I can live like hell for, you know, the moment I'm conceived in the womb and I come out and I can live like a total devil and and expect, well, I was baptized, sorry, at St. Christopher's. I'm going to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. Will you find an infant baptism in the Bible? You won't find it anywhere. You will not find it anywhere. Will you find anywhere the adoration of Mary? When the very last words that are recorded in the scripture of her, she says, whatever my son, it's recorded in John chapter 3, whatever my son says, do that. That's the last we hear of Mary. And who is she pointing to? Her son, Jesus Christ. Is she going, well, you know, he's kind of temperamental. You know, since he's grown up, he's gotten quite rebellious. But, you know, if you come to me, I can somehow go, you know, son, you should really be a little more lenient. I mean, after all, you're not very sensitive. You're not very politically correct. So you're not very woke. You know, so it's never about Mary. It was never about Mary. Mary worshipped her son. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And his name will be called Emmanuel. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of his government there shall be no end. This son whom the Bible has foretold 700 years before he was even born, 
Behold, I'll give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive. A very specific woman in time. Her name is Mary. And bear a son. It's biblical. Anything that is not biblical, we must reject. Even at the peril of losing friends. You know, you can still be loving and kind. And we ought to be, right? The church of Jesus Christ should be loving and kind. But when it comes to truth, you better be dogma. You better stand on it and do not budge. You can lovingly, you can be lovingly stubborn, and that's what I am. I think. Hopefully, I'm loving, but I can be stubborn, and I think it's good to be stubborn in the truth of God. Be lovingly stubborn. Do not let anyone take you off of that path, that narrow path. Wide is the gate. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And few there are that find their way on that. Are you on the narrow path this morning? I want to encourage you, if, if any of this makes sense to you this morning, if, if, there are any, if there's anyone here in the room that has not given their heart to the Lord, come on down. After we pray, come on down. You don't need to come down, but come on down and pray. Receive the Lord. Rededicate your heart to him. Rededicate your heart to the word of God, nothing else. Get your compass centered on him again. Nothing else. Can we do that? I need to do that because I find that everything in the world is trying to get me off that path. Do you feel the same way? Everything is trying to get me to walk crooked. It's trying to get me to compromise and do this and do that. And it's all around us. We're inundated, inundated by it. Folks, you stay tenaciously like a, can I just say something? Have you seen, there's a wonderful thing about a pit bull. You can hold up a piece of meat on a hook. (laughs) And that pit bull will jump up and grab that meat and he will lock his jaws they can lock their jaws on it, and it's going to take a while for you to get the, the, the mouth off that meat. That dog can lock its jaws, and, and it's going to take death of the dog to get it undone if he chooses. You can beat the dog. I mean, I've never done this. I wouldn't encourage it. No, no, heart, no dog was hurt in this commercial. I wouldn't encourage that, but they can hold on. They lock their jaw. That's the way you and I need to be with the truth of Jesus Christ, with the truth of the word of God. Lock onto it and don't let anybody take you off of it. Amen? Stand together. We'll finish this chapter next week. Um, It really is an important chapter. I really didn't plan on spending three weeks in this one, but there is a lot here, and I think it's worth looking at. And so, Father, we just come before you and we thank you Lord, for the exhortation in your word, Father, we thank you for the warnings that are in your word. And Father, we pray that every one of us would get our focus on you. And that, Lord, there'd be nothing on this world, Lord, that would keep us from staying focused on you. Lord, help us to keep you the main thing, especially the season that we come upon, Father, which is a really wonderful season, giving and and, and the joy and Lord, spending time with family, all these things are good, God, but help us to keep our understanding of what it's really all about, that Jesus is the reason for the season. Help us to remember that, Lord. And help us in the time that we have remaining on this earth to love. To, Lord, not go on the attack, 
But sometimes telling the truth is the greatest love. The truth is love. But help us to do it with the right hearts. And Lord, have your way with us, Lord. Keep us on the straight and narrow. Keep us from swerving off the path, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.